0: Good morning. There we go. Operator error. Thank you again, praise and worship team. Thank you again. I know uh, I'm not a musically inclined person, and uh, I think my appreciation for music, I know, is probably not as much as it should be. But thank you again for leading worship. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through music, speaks to us through the Word, speaks to us through our small groups and discussion, prepares our hearts and minds. And once again, as not in the music aficionado, I say thank you again for allowing just this manner of once again the Holy Spirit being able to speak to me already this morning. So once again, welcome Grace Chapel. Good morning. My name is Jason Cabrera. I'm an elder here at Grace, and I'll be giving your message today. We've been uh, in a series in Philippians over the last several weeks, and we've basically been walking chapter through chapter, verse through verse, the books of Philippians, and Paul has written about several important things that he is talking about himself, but once again, writing to the church in Philippi. He has shared his current circumstances. He is writing to this church as a prisoner from Rome. So, once again, it's towards the end of his life. He doesn't know it at that time, but he completely acknowledges in Philippians that it is a possibility. He has provided exhortations, encouragements, and appeals to stand firm amid persecution, to be united as a church in humility, to remember the example of Christ, to be a light in the dark world. Also, he is writing that he will be sending his companions to the church at Philippi, both Timothy and Aphroditus, Timothy, who Paul identifies as as close as what can be considered a son to him, who genuinely cares for the believer's welfare and has proved himself in preaching the true gospel. And Epaphroditus, who has recovered from a great sickness as he has risked his life for the work of the gospel, who longs to return to his church and continue the work for Jesus Christ. We will be continuing in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. So to start out, I want to introduce you to a, uh, a veteran. His name is Lieutenant Colonel William Harris. He was a United States Marine involved in combat in both World War II and the Korean War. This was a man devoted to his duty and his country. And I just wanted to uh, tell you about a few of his life experiences. He was extremely smart. He had a photographic memory he could speak five different languages proficiently. He graduated from the United States Academy in 1939. Yes, he was a Marine, and as Marines will tell you today, they don't like the fact that they are still under the Department of Navy. The United States entered World War II. He was captured by the Japanese in the Battle of Corregidor in the Philippines in 1942. So it was only about six months after the war started that he became a prisoner of war. He escaped the Japanese army by swimming across Manila Bay for eight and a half hours and joined up with Filipino guerrillas resisting the Japanese occupation. So he was a fighter. After a year or so, uh, he tried to attempt to non-occupied China. That wasn't, uh, he wasn't successful in that, still working with the guerrillas. He was recaptured by the Japanese in 1943 and taken to Ofuna, a Japanese prisoner of war camp. He experienced malnutrition, starvation, torture, was almost beaten to death on at least one occasion. He was a prisoner of war in the same camp as Louis Zamperini, and if that name sounds vaguely familiar, there's an account of uh, Louis Zamperini in the book called Unbroken, or the movie Unbroken. And one of the characters portrayed in this film in the POW camp is Colonel Harris, So he was in POW camps for several years. Eventually when the United States uh, won the war and he was released, he was once again on the USS Missouri during the Japanese surrender to General MacArthur. So he was at some very prominent uh, occasions uh, during this time period. After World War II, he stayed in Marines. He got married and he had two daughters. In about five years after World War II, the Korean War started. And once again, he continued to serve his country and he was a commanding officer of a marine unit in Korea. In one of the citations for his acts, it says, Harris gathered his men under murderous fire and organized an attack straight at the Chinese position. Although taking heavy casualties, his battalion was able to hold the Chinese off long enough for the Marine Corps convoy to escape. This was during the retreat that was happening to the South Korean and American forces in the beginning of that war. The last time he was seen alive by anyone in his unit, he was walking with two rifles towards enemy positions. Never seen again. What are the terms that describe this man and his actions? Steadfast? Heroic? Legendary? Anyone who serves in the military would want a leader like this man. Would any of us have the caliber of this individual to perform similarly under extreme duress or under these conditions. Now, I don't know anything about this man's religious beliefs, his theology, but his actions are memorialized and looked upon as examples in the Marines. The Marines' motto, Semper Fidelis, or more commonly known as Semper Fi, is always faithful. It symbolizes the lifelong commitment Marines make to their organization and the military members that they serve. Ultimately, this man gave his all, faithful to his country, his core, his men, and his mission, and once again, making the final sacrifice. So as we head into Philippians 3, we know that Paul is experiencing persecution, conflict. One of the core messages as mentioned in earlier sermons in the series is from Philippians 1.21, where Paul writes, For to me to live is Christ, And to die is gain. Paul is mentally wrestling a positive or another positive, determining on the future verdict for his life. And people will look at that and be like, how is it a positive or a positive? One positive from his view is that if he is killed by the Romans, the desire of his heart to be in the presence of Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior, the one that changed his life on the Damascus Road, is met. He meets his Savior. On the other positive, Paul continues his mission of spreading the gospel and the fruits of his labor would continue to serve God to wherever he is led. He is willing to give his all and to make the final sacrifice for his mission. Once again, we'll be covering Philippians 3, verses 1 through 16. Uh, We get to one of the core texts of Paul's writing in verses 7 through 9. And that is, Let us pray before we go farther into God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time of worship this morning to prepare our hearts, our minds, and our spirits for your truth. We thank you for your sovereign plan of Jesus being crucified, killed, and resurrected that paid for our sin debt. We have affirmation of our salvation based on faith in Jesus Christ as our only Savior and only way to peace. I ask that these words this morning do not reflect my words, but represent the living word of God, active, engaging, and speaking to all those that hear. I ask the Holy Spirit and believers to challenge us in our walk with Jesus Christ, to convict us of our sin, so that we may be repentant, ask for forgiveness, and to continue our growth and sanctification, to glorify you. We give you all the credit and the mercy and the grace provided to those that profess Jesus Christ as their Savior and seek to obey your commandments. Amen. So once again, Paul is on a mission from God to spread the news of Jesus Christ to all, no matter what it costs him. You read through the different epistles, you read through Acts, and you see what, has, what he has done, what he has experienced, the good, the bad. By most accounts, he, had a very suc- he was very successful in his missionary trips through Judea, Syria, Asia Minor, Greece, and many other locations throughout the Roman world. Despite the hostilities from his own people, the Jews, from hostilities from the Gentiles, and even Christians from churches that he had preached, taught, and had fellowship with those believers. Once again, Paul is a prisoner in Rome. This this time he writes his letter to the church and expresses that even his guards know of his mission for Jesus and who he serves as, in, as written in Philippine, Philippians 1:12 and 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's in prison and he's already thankful that he can continue his mission in spreading the gospel, continuing with 13, so that it may become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's ready to give it all. In Philippians 4.22, at the end uh, of this epistle, Paul even writes that the emperor's household knows and the Holy Spirit has been active. As Paul closes out, he has the opportunity to share the gospel with the most powerful family in the world at that time or in their area of the world. And he states, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So even though Paul is in prison, he acknowledges this, but he provides encouragement and is continually dedicated in his service in advancing the gospel. Once again, starting chapter 3, going through verses uh, 1 through 16. First one is Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but to you it is safe. So he begins with a uh, statement of finally, it's not a therefore. A distinct separation from a little bit of the previous writings in the epistle there are many similarities and themes that run through the earlier chapters as unity obedience and righteousness an argument against the supremacy of legalism or the law paul is encouraging his fellow believers united together as a single family in jesus christ encouraging them to rejoice in the priceless value of personally knowing and experiencing jesus christ he is writing to affirm confirm And help sustain their faith through this encouragement the term safe in Greek I'm gonna murder this as follies translates as not liable to fail steadfast firm unfailing and Paul is relying in the same hope and is then reiterating the same hope to the church in Philippi in verse 2 he writes beware of dogs beware of evil workers beware of mutilation the encouragement of verse 1, Remain to Steadfast, is followed up by this warning of false teachers and false messages. It uses the example of dogs because they were unclean animals. If anyone has a dog and they go outside, especially in muddy or snowy weather, then I know trying to clean them off before they come inside can not necessarily be the easiest task. Once again, dirty dogs. In verse 3, it says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul is using the example of circumcision as separation from the unclean multiple and the truly consecrated, consecrated to God. The use of circumcision is not meant a physical circumcision as stated by the Judaizers. Paul is emphasizing the worship in spirit, a genuine, a genuine relationship with Christ, not an intellectual act or going through the motions. Unfortunately, circumcision was used as a tool by the legalistic false teachers in the church as an outward sign of salvation or part of their salvation. In Orthodox Judaism, it was a mandatory action, a commandment for all males in the Jewish faith. But this false teaching in the early church was addressed by Paul repeatedly in his epistles. The completion of this act was not a guarantee or requirement of salvation as well as indicated by these false teachings in ephesians 2 11 through 13 paul addresses the former separation between the gentiles and god as not being among the circumcised the clean but he also stresses the uselessness of this physical action that the jews were so prideful in their separation from pagans and the ungodly so starting in verse 11 don't forget that you gentiles used to be outsiders you were called uncircumcised heathens by the jews who were proud of their circumcision even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. It was not a spiritual part of their worship to God. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But here the key, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ." But now Jews and Gentiles are brought together by Jesus Christ. Paul also stresses that any person, no matter what their race, lineage, or status, was eligible to be saved. There are the saved and the unsaved, those covered in the blood of Jesus Christ and those not covered. Christ lives in all believers. There is no hierarchy, caste, or rank. In Colossians 3, 9-11, Paul writes, Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. So once again, that promise that you are born again, you're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ through your faith that he is our savior. This follows the teachings of Jesus Christ, that there were no favorites, and favoritism was not a Christian virtue. We are called to be at peace with our neighbors, to love our enemies, to serve both Christians and non-Christians. Believers are to become in the likeness of Jesus. Paul even had to confront and correct the apostle Peter, as it is written in Galatians. While they were in Antioch, Peter had been eating with Gentile Christians, Remember, belonging to the same family, Jew and Gentile, in Jesus Christ, as we read in Colossians. We see this initial fellowship between Jew and Gentile, but then the Judaizers arrived, those with the incorrect belief or heresy that all believers, Jew and Gentile, were required to be circumcised for salvation or a part of their salvation. We have the Apostle Peter that we know from Acts who's done miracles, that has stood in front of the Sanhedrin, But yet here, he was afraid of the criticism of this group, and Peter's timidity and refusal to correct this error even led others astray. It states that even Barnabas, an associate of Paul, was led astray by his hypocrisy. Paul speaks in Galatians chapter 2, verses 16, stating, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Once again, mandating, it's not legalism. It's not following the law. It's that personal faith and relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. We return to Philippians now at the end of verse 4. Tongue-tied this morning. Paul is stressing that confidence in the flesh is failing. There is no confidence to have all in the flesh. Paul even uses the example of his history and past discretions while a member of the Pharisees, not yet a believer. The Pharisees are an example of the depravity of man, blinded and condemned by his own sin, as discussed in Romans 1. The Savior they were seeking and awaiting was right in front of them, yet most of them did not identify or have the veil removed from their eyes that... To truly understand who they were interacting with. In verses 4 through 6, Paul continues with the futility of confidence in the flesh. Though I also might be, have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Why would he have more so? Well, then he explains over the next two verses. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of all Hebrews, Concerning the law, a Pharisee. He has zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul has written another list. When Paul writes lists, they're always important to look at them. And as we look in depth, we see basically a summary of Paul's credentials before he came to know Jesus Christ circumcised on the eighth day according to the traditions held sacred by the Hebrews as identified in the Old Testament in Genesis 17. This rite had to be performed on all male babies in accordance with the law. Paul as a Pharisee assumed his salvation on this earth was assured by his so-called righteous actions. Paul was participating in remaining true to that legalistic interpretation of the law, not a God-honoring relationship completely dependent on God and humble before him. As it is written, out of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, he's showing his blood credentials. He's pure-blooded. His family has pedigree, which is very important in a lineage in this type of patriarchal society. He states he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a perfect resemblance, embodiment, or role model for all the other religious leaders to emulate. He was a star or rock star among the Pharisees at that time. As written concerning the law, he knew the law. He was educated and had trained under Gamaliel, a doctor or prestigious teacher of the law at that time, one of the most preeminent scholars, and more than likely the same man that listened to the apostles, uh, Peter, while they were under trial in the Sanhedrin in Acts 5. For preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, they were beaten and they were told to stop preaching the gospel. Well, I'm so glad the apostles didn't listen to them and kept on with their ministry. He says he's a Pharisee, and I have a short summary here from Joseph Thayer that kind of gives us a little bit of a comprehensive overview of what a Pharisee was and how they, uh, I'll say, conducted themselves. So they sought for distinction and praise by the observation of external rites and by the outward forms of piety, such as ceremonial washings for cleanliness, fasting, prayers, contributions, and offerings. They had comparatively negligent of genuine piety. Wow. Negligent of genuine piety. They prided themselves on their fancied good works. They held strenuously to the belief in the existence of good and evil angels and to the expectation of a Messiah, which makes it even more that the Messiah was right in front of them and yet did not recognize who they were speaking to. And they were waiting for a Messiah. They also cherished the hope that the dead, after preliminary experience, either a reward or penalty in Hades, would be recalled to life by this Messiah and be judged according to their individual deeds. They were in opposition to the Herods and the Romans. Um, They really thought a theocracy or a government ruled by the priest was what Israel was supposed to be, and they were very, very nationalistic. And they had a lot of influence among the common people. But even Jesus in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, I think is a perfect example of how the Pharisees looked at themselves and conducted themselves, starting in verse 9. So Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This parable speaks of the pious false righteousness compared to the repentant sinner begging for mercy from God to be restored to righteousness. Once again going back to that list of credentials from Paul, he talks about his zeal as an enthusiasm and a fervor embracing and pursuing and defending the law. And when he had this zeal, he was persecuting the church. And there's several descriptions in Acts eight and nine of Paul's degree of thoroughness or zeal to execute his mission for Judaism, because they considered the followers of Jesus a cult, a heresy, not the truth. In Acts eight one it says, And Paul approved I'm sorry, and Saul approved of his execution of Stephen, And there arose on the day of great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then verse 3, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. In Acts 9, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the followers of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he has this seal. He has this false understanding in following the legalism of the law. Once again, missing that whole concept of that relationship with God. As we saw with the tax collector in that parable, he was seeking forgiveness for his sins humbly from God. Paul summarizes his credentials to openly demonstrate his attempted salvation by works in implementing the legalisms of the law, which ultimately were empty and void. There was no salvation based on his best of everything or anything. At this point in his life, there was no life centered on Jesus as a Savior, his Redeemer, or the debt paid for his sins. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes... For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self had been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And there's a difference that you can see very comparatively that he writes in retrospect of his time under the law and the time under grace. Paul's life altering experience on the Damascus Road, from oppressor by the law to preacher of grace, changed his worldview. He had received grace from Jesus Christ according to God's sovereign plan, and his eyes were opened, figuratively at first until the scales fell off his eyes. His enlightened discernment, as described once again in 1 Corinthians 2 9 through 12, is only through the Holy Spirit. But as it is written, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Reinforcement from God, not something that we can just self-generate or be able to take. Paul in Corinthians is identifying this revelation. It can only be revealed by the Holy Spirit to believers as we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. This is the movement of man out of blinding sin of depravity to know the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness, holiness, and the call to draw closer to God. For me personally, all I can say is praise Jesus, our Savior, and to our God, Heavenly Father, as a recipient of his grace and mercy as well. And I cannot give him enough thanks every day for that gift. Returning once again back to Philippians. Going to verses 7 through 10, Paul gets to the heart of this section of Scripture. He ponders what was gained through his own actions, his own work, his, his righteousness. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, belong, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul had all these confidences in his actions in following the law circumcision, birthright. A part of the chosen nation, not part of the pagans. As part of the religious elite, an upper caste of society determining how his society should be mandated and with a zeal. Yet all this gain, this profit, this advantage, his works on earth had accumulated were for naught. The status of everything performed in the name of God under the law was considered a big fat zero. It was no longer valuable. All this was considered worthless in comparison to what Jesus Christ had done. In verse 8, Paul speaks of the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This excellence has surpassing worth, superior in every way. The mystery of Jesus Christ had been revealed to Paul. He again reiterates that everything he has given up was considered rubbish, worthless, and in the Greek it can even imply manure or dung. That's a powerful statement. From a societal standpoint, Paul had it all, status, education, bloodline, and power but how humbling to see that it was worthless compared to the gift bestowed to him through Jesus Christ. Now that Paul recognizes the value of knowing Jesus Christ, it is interesting that starting in verse 8 and continuing in verse 9, Paul writes that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but what is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which from God by faith. Most versions of the Bible state that I may gain Christ, but in the King James Version, it uses that I may win Christ. Not the exact same word, similar, but different as used in verse seven. Paul is stating he received God's favor and fellowship, not through his righteousness, but the righteousness which is from God through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness is imputed to the convert, to the believer. This is accredited and attributed only to God. God's righteousness is bestowed to believers through faith. The justification is similarly described in Romans three, twenty one through twenty six. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate that the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus Christ's sacrifice Of a brutal brutal painful death on the cross was the appeasement it was the payment for our sins our sins of unrighteousness rebellion against God and his perfect holiness had to be atoned Jesus Christ's death paid for God's judgment of eternity in hell as believers in Jesus Christ we were saved from this eternal torment and darkness for the sins you and I have committed in the past the present and the future Our sin debt to God was erased by this act. The blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross was atonement. This is what Paul is stating on his own account, but it remains the same account for every believer back then and today. This is the knowledge Paul reflects on as he writes to the believers in Philippi. But he does not end with the death of Jesus Christ, but the encouragement, the hope, the factuality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From verse 10, that I may know him, And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Our sin debt was paid and Paul understands the power of Jesus' resurrection. But the promise of the resurrection to the believers remains unfulfilled as in the rapture into heaven. Jesus was resurrected and trained the truth preached by him was accurate as voicing the word of God. But believers remain waiting for the fruition of this promise. And Paul explains us a little bit more in depth in First Thessalonians chapter 4, in verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Paul speaks of those that sleep or believers that have already passed and they will rise first to meet Jesus. Then those believers who are alive will meet Jesus Christ. We do not know when this will occur, but we know it will occur. Once again, this is a surety that the Holy Spirit provides to every believer. Paul also speaks of the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Remember, the believers in Philippi are under affliction and persecution. They are sharing in the fellowship, the union in Jesus Christ, but similarly, they are experiencing suffering for their beliefs. They are conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, and Paul is encouraging them as he also has been conformed by Jesus Christ. Paul is willing to die for his continued work for his beliefs, and the believers at Philippi, Philippi must be willing to do the same. This is the all for Christ. This is the theme for this section in chapter 3 as Paul is willing to give his all. In verse 11, Paul is highlighting that by any means on this earth, every fiber of his strength, his body, his mind, and his spirit is dedicated to his mission in serving Jesus Christ and spreading the good news, whether that be undergoing persecution, trials, or even death, to obey and rise again in perfection with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That is something that he is looking forward to. Once again, in in Philippians, he writes for for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He knows, he expects, he is hoping with certainty, the expectation that whether he was going to continue his ministry after Rome or if he was killed by the Romans, would be even better because he would be in glory with his lord and once again that is an expectation as a believer we each have there is no hesitation there is no flip-flopping it's only an iron will to serve and the sacrifice using jesus christ as his example no matter what the risk to personal injury or in, or to himself he will continue after this reinforcement from Paul on the willingness to give it all, he provides more encouragement as believers continue to walk in their salvation, to never stop, to develop in spiritual growth, to continue to press towards towards the goal. Not to stay on milk, but to move to meat. In verses 12 through 16 of chapter 3, it starts... Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this even to you. Nevertheless, to the degree which we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Paul implies an analogy of running this race or going towards the goal here in Philippians. And this is very common. He uses this in Second Timothy, Galatians, and also First Corinthians. Paul uses the Greek verb here dioko in verses 12 and 14, translated to press on. In the first use, it is figuratively used as to describe one who is in a race as fast as they can go to reach that goal. I'll get to the second use here in a few minutes. In verse 12, Paul uses this difference to lay the importance that as a believer in Jesus Christ, his growth has not been completed or perfected. The act of attaining or reaching or growing in Jesus Christ remains active, even for Paul at this time. He has not settled that he has reached the goal, but the motivation to move forward continues. A journey of progression, not perfection. A man that has traveled throughout the Roman world, been in countless towns and synagogues, preached, spoken, and debated with commoner, educated, religious elite, pagan, and to the heights of power of that day. He experienced brutality, prison, and other man-made afflictions. He was visited by angels and Jesus Christ himself. He is one of the greatest Christian minds and authors to this day but still did not consider himself at the peak of his journey. He was willing to continue and move forward and once again fulfilling his mission, continuing his personal growth. In verse 13, Paul writes that the past is behind him, even to forget what has been accomplished or misdeeds committed and is striving with all his existence to the future in and for Jesus Christ. Paul could have built an organization within the confines of Christianity to honor himself, to gather wealth or, to, or power, Paul could have stayed miserable and despondent in the sins that he had committed in the name of the law and the failures of a sinful man. But his perseverance and dedication and only to glorify God and knowing that Jesus Christ is his Savior continued on, that perseverance is evident. Verse 14 it says, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the second use of Dioco. Here, is to describe someone pursuing another in earnest. So we have the difference between those two uses in those two verses. Paul's eyes remain fixed on the goal, the lifelong pursuit that will not be completed until death or called to heaven. The call which was made by God on the grounds of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The goal of eternity in heaven with God our Father and Jesus our Savior. Paul concludes this portion of Philippians calling believers to strive to spiritual maturity as we call our walk in sanctification day by day, hour by hour, and sometimes even minute by minute, continuously moving forward in a direction towards Jesus Christ. Paul even addresses those that are not of this mind and that God will reveal or discern a close relationship with Jesus Christ to move towards spiritual maturity. We are to walk in unity in the message the believers have been preached, taught, and a truce that unify the church. Paul has given us many truths in this section. While a prisoner in Rome, he writes a letter to walk in sanctification. He has challenges. He has continued advancement of the gospel and passing his example of challenges and successes. He wants to continue this on. Even in his current situations, he is still saying to the church in Philippi, it doesn't matter how bad it gets keep on moving forward, step by step by step. I'd like to return to uh, Marine Lieutenant Colonel Harris. He had many similarities as Paul, both men steadfast, committed, determined to execute their missions as directed. Lieutenant Colonel Harris' virtues and character are self-evident in his ultimate sacrifice to a human calling. Paul's virtues and character were self-evident, in ultimate sacrifice for a heavenly and divine calling. Both were called to service in all that they did, but a works-based service, military or religious, has no value in self-generating a means of salvation. I think Paul would agree to some extent in having an outlook and mission similar to the Marines' motto, Semper Fi, always faithful, symbolizing Paul's lifelong commitment to Jesus Christ in all aspects of his being no matter what the cost, no matter what the pain, the struggle, he would continue. And that is a great example for each one of us to follow. I close, this passage, I close with this passage from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time this morning. We thank you, thankful for the truth of your word. We ask, Heavenly Father, as we go out today, as we go out this week, Heavenly Father, that we continue in our walk with you in sanctification and to give you glory and to give you honor in all things. We are so very blessed and so very thankful, and in Jesus' name, amen.